save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest today is Aaron Vandiver. Aaron wears many hats. He is an attorney, a green business owner, and a conservationist. Upon graduation from law school at Emory University, Aaron practiced law at a large international law firm and also served as a clerk for a federal judge on the United States Court of Appeals and as assistant United States attorney. It was after profound encounters with wildlife in South Africa and efforts to reconnect to nature in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado and conservation as both a past and career. Today, in our continuing series about facing the extreme challenges and preparing for the future, Aaron brings us insights as to how the fundamental policies and structures we are currently operating under the global growth model ultimately brings us about the ecological destruction we are trying to prevent. So, Aaron, um, welcome. Thank you very much, Ellie. Happy to be here. I'm really glad to be here. That was kind of an abrupt uh, rejoinder there, but we have a lot to talk about today. And folks, uh, listeners, I'd also like to say Aaron is now working with Wild Eyes, so listen closely because you'll see why it's uh, such a boon to have him here and the conversations we get into in the office. We've been talking about this growth model and unsustainable growth model many times in the office and I've said you know we really need to put this on our wild world so um, welcome Aaron it's not often I get the chance to talk over the airwaves with um, one of the people I'm working so closely with so uh, let's begin with a little bit about you tell us how this transition happened right well thank you Ellie um you know, I appreciate that introduction and, uh, you know, information about my background. And I, I would just like to say, you know, the, the conversations that we've had and the things that we've talked about and the main message that I want to try to get across is, um, is to all the conservationists out there who listen to your show all over the world, um, people who bring great passion to their concern for species and climate, water, um, you know, we as conservationists must try and start connecting the dots between what's happening on the ground to the primary root causes of this problem with global ecological devastation. And these root causes um, can be really found in the in the basic structures of our economic and legal system, and that's sort of where I come in and bring a unique perspective. You know, we all have a unique perspective as conservationists. Some of us come from, you know, different walks of life. And I happen to come from seeing, uh, you know, inside the corporate Mer- America and corporate boardrooms and... Um, the legal system. The legal system itself. And um, that's the perspective I bring to it uh, as a conservationist. And as I've got involved in this movement um i'm i'm you know i've talked with many people and written about issues and i see sort of a disconnect um 
there's a gap in the knowledge that can be filled in there between, um, you know, the grassroots passion about saving a particular species or a particular ecosystem or a forest or whatever it is, and but connecting that to what are the root causes of the of the destruction? Why does this destruction continue on such a massive scale, and why does it keep going forward? And and, this is, this um, is really great. Let me just jump in here one second. This is really great because over the past series, as our listeners are most likely aware, we've been bringing in these um, different dots, you know, with Ashwell Glasson and Stephen Capra um, about uh, what we're doing and how the government and how our systems are functioning and you know, how the conservationists and NGOs are trying to I'll use the word fight or change these systems, but we haven't really addressed, um, and that's why it's so great to have this conversation with you today, this knowledge gap. We talked about it with Ashwell several times and with Stephen, the knowledge gap, but today we're going to pin that down a little more narrowly and try to fill in that knowledge gap, and Aaron, you're the guy to help us do it. Um, so let's sort of segue into, let's explain what growth is and why we're seeing the patterns we've been seeing over the past 50 years when things started to fall apart after the 60s. Right. Well, as you know, um, Ellie, the growth, it, you know, is one of, it, it's a shorthand. The term growth is a shorthand for the system overall that, you know, our economic system that is continuing to grow and and is a fundamental driver of the ecological devastation that we see in the world today. There's an article written by George Monbiot that we've talked about called Everything Must Go recently, where he puts his finger on growth as the source of the problem. And actually, it's been well understood, or it used to be well understood in the conservation movement uh, decades ago, that this was a fundamental the fundamental problem. If you go back to the 1970s, there was the book Limits to Growth, one of the best-selling environmental books of all time. There was the book Small is Beautiful by E.F. Shoemaker. You know, writers like Edward Abbey talked about growth. It was well understood. Now we, we've lost that understanding. We've lost that language where we need to come back to it. And so if I can summarize what growth is, I would say in in my understanding, to use my words, what I refer to growth as is the you know perpetually growing human presence on planet Earth, the total human enterprise, all of it. More people, more stuff, more and more, bigger, bigger. You know, every day, every month, every year, we have more people consuming more things. Um, we have 7.6 billion people, which it's a population growing by 200,000 per day, 75 million per year. And each of these people is consuming more and more stuff, meaning manufactured products like plastic. Um, there's growth in the number of our livestock animals, billions and billions of livestock animals, growth in the number of our vehicles, our roads, our infrastructure, our agriculture, our waste products, um, growth in our carbon emissions, in 2017, carbon emissions grew by 2% a year. Well, any system that grows by 2% a year will double in approximately 36 years. Um, growth in our pesticide use, our herbicide use, the logging of trees, 
growth in our corporate profits and our gross domestic product, growth in our natural resource consumption, our energy consumption, our mineral consumption, our consumption of marine life. Everything, all of it continues to grow. And as it grow, as it grows, we put more and more pressure on the natural world. And so we have to try to understand why that's happening, what's driving it, and and what are the structures there? What are the what are the structures and the systemic uh, pressures that are making this happen? And I think only when we understand that can we step back and look at the big picture because as conservationists, we cannot um, just continue focusing on our narrow issues or our narrow areas of specialty. We need to try to connect those dots. So when you say areas of specialty, it's sort of um, what a lot of the NGOs are focusing on today and what I've talked about a lot is kind of the hijacking of the term conservation into a product and each NGO wants to grow. They want to grow their bottom line. They want to grow their donor base. They do that by attracting to more unique or boutique camps and grow their base and then on top of this growth, We also have all the growth that you just mentioned, and that leads us to our title, Infinite Growth on a Finite Planet Just Isn't Possible. And since the 60s, I mean, even before the 70s and um, the book you'd mentioned, we were talking about this in the 60s, and that's the model I come from. And um, so to see 50 years on down the line and to talk to you that someone halfway between that is a so um, invigorating and encouraging that this thinking is out there so how do we transfer this knowledge and fill in this knowledge gap where did it fall apart and how do we pull it back together well you're right Ellie that this was um, you know I wasn't around in the 60s but when I <laughs> my understanding and my reading of um, you know, from from that period is that this was well understood by the, the early generations of environmental activists. The idea that infinite growth on a finite planet is not possible. Well, that was considered a truism um, that most people in the movement understood. Um, there were famous quotes. Edward Abbey wrote, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. And that kind of thing was well accepted and then um and it's even well accepted now as we talk about let's use an example africa or um our current policies you know the growth model we want to keep growing our economic uh output so what you're telling us right now is that thinking if we want to keep growing the economic output in the way that we're currently doing it it's not going to work so that doesn't mean we have to go back to living in caves and stop everything, screech and put on right. the brakes. So where do we put on the brakes? How do we find the places to encourage folks to live sustainably and what that means within the limits of the resources we have? Why don't you give us a couple of analogies? Right. Well, the first thing I would say is that we have to understand what is driving this growth. You know, even though even though it's sort of understood, you know, in a general sense, infinite growth is not possible and that, um, you know, there's corporate greed out there. And we have to get that under control. Um, 
it, we we have to really try to understand what's driving it, on, you know, at a structural basic level. So what I've seen, you know, early in my career, for instance, is the the structure of a corporation and what is a corporation and why is a corporation built and designed in such a way to, to grow forever and to put that pressure for growth constantly there. We have to understand what corporations are. We have to understand how our monetary system is structured um, in such a way that it creates the pressure for perpetual growth. Our accounting systems um, do not allow for the um, accounting for environmental damage, you know, in corporate profits. We have to understand these things and start connecting these dots. And these are not conversations that normally take place in um, conservation circles and enough. I mean, they do to a certain extent. And another example is gross domestic product. We, our political systems, all the governments on earth are oriented towards that. And um, well, we've gotten sort of. Let me see if I if I'm getting you correctly. So we've gotten to sort of a point where these c- concepts are kind of limited to the rarefied halls of the economists and market economists. We had Alejandro um, Nadal talking to us about this from CITES, and that the conservation is now so focused on selling the product of species or biodiverse diversity hotspots that we're forgetting even within this structure that the model it's being based on growth that we have to keep growing is is fundamentally the thing that is driving the failure of as mark dowie put it losing ground right exactly uh, you had a a guest on your show recently um Nick Brandt, you know, he said, um, to use a a metaphor that, um, you know, on the ground conservation actions are triage actions meant to sort of stop the bleeding on the patient um, while we wait for the patient to heal, while we wait for the systemic problem to get better. And... um, well, that's what a lot, you know, Damien says the same thing. I'm, you know, IAPF, I'm here to stop the hemorrhaging. So right. we have a lot of folks like Nick Brandt, um, myself included, but I do tend to think of the bigger picture. That's how Wild Eyes functions. And, um, you know, Calvin Cotter, that we're focusing on trying to retrieve economic benefit and income generation from the land in a new way. But it's still not addressing the bigger problem. So how do we get the economists involved in the everyday workings and the everyday mind of the Facebook conservationists to the NGO conservationists? Right, right. Well, you know, you're correct that there are some economists who uh, and theorists who think on these issues and and write up reports and books, but a lot of it is dry and it's not really connected to the passion of the grassroots folks. Um, like, like you said, like you see on Facebook. So, you know, I could refer you to the writings of, you know, an economist named Herman Daly, who's written about, uh, 
you know, the impossibility of infinite growth on a finite planet and um, his theory is of steady state economics. But what we've got to do is to try to connect the passion and that people have. You know, there's a lot of passion out there, a lot of interest. Um, people want us, they see the cute fuzzy animals, they want to save them. But we need to connect that passion to the bigger picture. And to bring it back to what Nick said about triage actions, um, yes, you know, the, the, we're trying to stop the hemorrhaging, but we need to step back and look at what the disease is. And to use if you to, uh, another metaphor, we could say, <clears throat> let's look at not just the battles that we're fighting, because we're winning some battles and losing some battles, but let's step back and look at the war in a strategic sense. And what, you know, are we winning the war or are we losing the war? And, what are, and what's driving that? Um, we have to get to the fundamentals. So how do we start thinking on a systemic basis? Well, to, to a certain extent, we have to rediscover it because like like we've mentioned, um, some of the earlier generations knew that. And we can go back and read their writings. We can go and read the writings of people who are working on it now. Um, but we have to tr- – basically, I think it's uh, a shift in mindset. It's about thinking on that level. Um, Doug Tompkins, the great conservationist in South America, who um, he was an American, but he saved millions and millions of acres in Chile. Um, He always said, think systemically. That was his uh, advice to conservationists, think systemically. And we've got to learn to think about the corporations, our monetary system, our accounting system, our GDP growth system, how are these things contributing? Because, for instance, our global economy right now is growing by 3% a year. Well, that means the entire global economy is going to double in 24 years, thereabouts. Now, can you imagine the pressure that's coming to bear on oceans, sources of water, species habitat, everything we care about, forests, rainforests, if the global economy doubles? In, tw- in the next two and a half decades, and then doubles again after that. You know, this is what I'm talking about. We have, <laughs> right? We have a systemic problem. So we need to try to understand not only that that is the problem, but why is it happening? You know, um, this is. Let's let's. I'm going to leave us on a cliffhanger because we need to cut to a break. So, folks, stick with us. Um, you can follow us on Facebook on Wild Eyes and Our Wild World, and we'll be right back with understanding more about why and how we can address this problem. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. 
She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Aaron Vandiver. And we're talking about growth, that infinite growth on a finite planet simply isn't possible. So if you're just tuning in, Eric, uh, excuse me, Aaron has been explaining to us um, where he comes from, his background in both the uh, corporate and legal framework of our country. And uh, we were getting into how this has become systemic over the last 40, 50 years, um, from when I grew up in the 60s to uh, Eric's age group, which is more late 30s, 40s. So let's explain a little bit more what systemic means and, and how the corporate and the legal system has gotten entrenched in this and how it's built into our systems. Right, Ellie. Thank you. I think when we talk about thinking systemically, we need to think about sort of turning that camera around from those cute, fuzzy animals and start looking at ourselves and the structures of our own society to see how they're designed and built and structured in such a way as to inevitably cause ecological destruction the way they are built and designed and structured. Um, We've talked about there's an article that you and I have talked about when a, a biological researcher trying to save the critically endangered vaquita said that, you know, if you really want to try to understand this and save species like this, you have to, instead of standing on the beach looking out, you need to turn around and look back in and look at the people because conservation is about people and this is a people problem. And um, so we have to look at ourselves and what these specific structures of our society are that are causing this. And, and I can get into specifics on that. Um, you know, we have a corporate system 
that is structured and built for growth. Now, that's something I happen to know about because I started my career as a corporate attorney. And I can tell you that the corporation, you know, it's a creature of our legal system. It is considered a legal fiction, meaning that it's it's something that exists only in the law. It, it is a corporate person, quote unquote, that recognized by the law, but not a real person. Um, a, it has certain legal rights of a person, but not the same characteristics. A corporation is immortal. It never dies. A corporation has no moral conscience. A corporation is structured to pursue one goal and one goal only, the maximization of shareholder value. Now, that wasn't necessarily always the case, but in the last 40, 50 years, that has been enshrined in our law that maximization of shareholder value is the one and only goal of the corporation. It is the primary goal. Now, there may have been a time when, you know, people who ran major corporations would tell you there were other goals like taking care of workers or protecting uh, society in general, but Today, Somewhere around like, Reagan, that changed. Correct. I mean, in the 80s and, you know, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution and, you know, the end of the Soviet Union and neoliberalism going into hyperdrive, all of that has accelerated and, um, you know, put the emphasis on shareholder value. And and the thing is, you know, it's common for conservationists out to, to say, to complain about corporate greed. And I think what my message would be is that's a good start, but it's sort of a, um, a superficial understanding of it. it's not really about greed because it's not about people um, who are in charge. It's, a, it's not about the individual characteristics of the people in charge. Certainly, there probably are greedy people in charge. There are some not so greedy people in charge, but the structure itself is built and designed in a way to keep growing and pursuing profits no matter what at the cost of all other values so the individual preferences and moral judgments of the people in charge are not really relevant those aren't the deciding factors the people in charge are are pursuing the in, they're they're bound by the institutional imperatives of the corporation which is to grow you know they have a the person in charge of a corporation has a legal obligation to grow at all costs so for instance, um, uh, a corporation like the Coca-Cola Corporation creates, um, manufactures 100 billion plastic bottles every year. Um, now, you could go to the CEO of that corporation and give them perfect evidence of all the devastation that this is causing in our oceans. Uh, I've, we've seen stories in the past couple of weeks of elephants in India and in Africa uh, having their bellies full of plastic and actually even dying from plastic and you know that it's unbelievable the amount of plastic out, out there but um, if you presented that evidence you might move that CEO on a moral level on a personal level you might move that person to tears even but the CEO doesn't have the ability to just say I'm going to stop making plastic bottles um, they have the corporation is structured in such a way they have to sell billions and billions of plastic bottles full of Coca-Cola to stay in business and maximize profits. They have to do that. This so what happens now is the buck never stops. 
Exactly. It just keeps growing and growing. It's a system designed to grow. It's like a, a machine or a computer that's been coded to do certain things or a biological organism that has a certain DNA that requires it to do certain things. If we want to change how it operates, we can't just talk about corporate greed. We have to change the DNA. We have to change the structure. Uh, let me uh, mention something you know, uh, that Elon Musk said recently, he, you know, he's been going around talking about the dangers of artificial intelligence. He, somebody asked him, well, give us an example. And he said, well, imagine if we created, uh, you know, an artificial intelligence system that was designed to plant and grow strawberries. And the system just got smarter and smarter and it kept growing and growing. And then it tried to plant strawberries all over the entire face of the whole earth, you know, destroy the earth trying to plant strawberries. Well, when I heard him say that, I thought to myself, it's, we have a very similar artificial intelligence system now called the corporation, which is designed to do similar things. We have corporations that are designed to extract and burn fossil fuels for profit. And those corporations are continuing to do it long past the point when we all know that burning and extracting fossil fuels is a threat to ourselves and to all the other, you know, many other species on the planet. It's a, it's a compromising our atmosphere, compromising our oceans, but these corporations continue to do it because and, they are built that way. And this sort of, you know, segues over to the conservation group as a whole as well in that, um, and you were, we were speaking that, you know, the Enver- American environmental movement has lost its focus on growth where it was in the 60s and that it's become institutionalized and professionalized, and that now they're insiders. Right. That's so, correct. I mean, you know, that, that is a, that's a difficult topic to figure out exactly where did the you know, conservation movement kind of get off course. There are people who have written about this. There's a man named Gus Speth, who was a co-founder of the NRDC. He's written extensively about how the, you know, People, the environmental movement, be, they became insiders and they became dependent on fundraising and in particular corporate fundraising. And so, which we call um, corporate social responsibility, which is another way of greenwashing. Right, right. And you, you know, if you're dependent on corporate fundraising, you can't really go around questioning the fundamental, you know, values and structures of corporate. Of the corporation. Well, you can, but you know it might not be in your best <laughs> interests if what you want is their money. Right. So it comes down to taking a stand at some point that you will not accept certain corporate funding because of the diametrically opposed goal structure. Right, and it's very difficult, you know, that for the big groups to do that. They're so dependent now on on that money, and they've developed ideologies and. And talking points that um, are consistent with the growth or corporate model. They talk about green growth, sustainable growth. Really, those things are not realistic. It's well, let not- me throw this wingnut in there, as my financial advisor often tells me. If you want to be able to change that corporate system, and let's say you're investing in a stock, um, what you can do is it's called by proxy. So rather than say, you know, I am not going to invest in this and because it's against my principles, what you can do is the old saying, you can join them to win. If you can't beat them, join them. So if we join in to this structure with a different systemic outlook 
from the get-go, then we can change the change things from the inside out. And that's right. what I mean, proxy are- votes are good for. You change the system from the inside. Right. There are opportunities for shareholder activism. There are all kinds of opportunities, tacti- you know, tactics that could be employed. I think we have to get our heads in the right place as conservationists first and understand what the goal is and understand what the challenges are and what the root causes of the, of this the ecological devastation is. So let's, let's, let's talk about that. How is growth, this, um, you know, green growth or sustainable growth, which is an oxymoron, because as you said, no form of growth is sustainable in perpetuity. And right. um, how is this built in? This is your forte. How is it built into our economic and legal systems? Corporations, money, law, right. gross uh, domestic product, politics. Right. Well, we've gone over, you know, the structure of the corporation, how it is built and designed to grow. And, and you know, we can talk about other structures, like, for instance, our money itself, the monetary system itself. You know, money is created in our system mostly as a form as debt with interest to be paid back, meaning that the whole system has to keep growing in order for the interest to be paid back. If the system stops growing, it collapses. That's how it's built. You that's know, an interesting uh, point because that's what's truly happened over the last 30 years is a, a complete, at least in the U.S. for sure, and this model is passing on to other developing worlds, is living in debt. Yes, yes. The system has to grow because it's based on debt. And the debt has to be paid back. And so that's another aspect structurally that we have to look at. And there are very bright economists out there who have written about these issues. Um, there's a gentleman who is an economist. Um, he's one of the creators of the Euro, um, Bernard Leter. He has theorized that we could create new monetary systems and new forms of currency that are do not rely on perpetual growth and that are not structured in such a way as to cause widespread e- ecological devastation. But that's a relatively small movement. I, you would probably call that part of the degrowth movement in Europe, which um, I, you know, I'm not 100% familiar with because I'm, you know, I'm operating in the United States where we don't have a degrowth movement. You know, it's there's zero influence. But, but so, we do have sort of a plan, and we've talked about this, is recoding and redesigning the corporation, change its DNA. And you have some examples, B corporations. Sure, there are examples out there, you know, examples that we can draw on and build on. For instance, the B corporation movement. Uh, A B corporation is a corporation, like Patagonia is the best example. Um, A B corporation actually is structured in a legal way so that it has goals other than just maximization of shareholder value. It has goals including health of the workers, well-being of the workers, um, health of the planet, and and in general um, contributing to society. That is put into the corporate charter and into the operating agreement and the governing documents of the corporation itself. And so we need to be thinking along those lines. And there, there are so many possibilities of directions you could take that. But well, isn't we, that sort of how Whole Foods began? And now to find out that it's become just as entrenched and um, 
rigorous as Amazon has bought it over? I think Whole Foods did a good job of um, promoting those type of values in a, in a PR sense, but not necessarily living or implementing those values. Yeah. And, and right now that they're owned by Amazon, I think uh, we can all see that they're definitely not being a leader in that way. Um, so um, we've got a few minutes left in this section. Well, actually, we've only got really a minute. So how about we um, take a break here? Because we still have quite a bit to discuss and then figure out and bring up some examples of how to change our mindset as individuals. So folks, stick with us and my guest, Aaron Vandiver. You can find more about us on the Wild Eyes Facebook page and Our Wild World. And uh, Aaron and I will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Aaron Vandiver. And we're talking about infinite growth 
on a finite planet simply isn't possible. And if you think it is, you're a madman. So, um, Aaron, we stopped our last section with talking about how it's it, this is this growth model is entrenched and embedded in the corporate system. So, with your background in working in the law and uh, the federal system, um, it's not only entrenched in the corporate system, but it got there because it's entrenched in the law, the Constitution, and our system of law itself. Right. Help us understand that. Right. Exactly. You know the. Constitution is our, you know, our governing foundational document and our system of law itself is not structured in such a way to recognize the rights of nature or any um, limits to our ability to um, exploit nature. Uh, The Constitution in the United States does not say anything about nature. Um, There are only... A cup. This is because it was written over 200 years ago. And, you know, environmental problems really not understood or non-existent at that point. Um, the there are only a couple of constitutions, national constitutions in the world today that that mention the rights of nature, and there there is a movement out there to recognize it, uh, recognize the rights of nature, and implement those into our legal systems. Um, it's sort of gaining steam. There have been some well-publicized legal decisions out of New Zealand and other places um, where rivers or other ecosystems are granted sort of a status of personhood, sort of like a corporation has personhood under the law. And those are promising developments. But I think what we need to understand and what con- everyday conservationists need to understand is our, our legal system is not structured in a way to recognize the rights of nature. And so if we want, we need to build that into the DNA of our legal system itself. Because right now what we have is a system where it's not built in, and then we try to bring it in later through regulation or legislation that is designed to protect nature, but it it doesn't fully work. Well, this is part of that knowledge gap and transfer of knowledge that we were talking about uh, when we began and how this affects this this lack of knowledge and this lack of understanding how entrenched and embedded this uh, corporate system is in our law and our constitution of the way it's being used today to face the challenges we're facing today that were not apparent a couple hundred years ago is that how it affects our society. And we're seeing that today under this current administration. Everything is falling apart. So in order for us to connect this and bring this into our everyday activism, we have to better understand these root causes. And the next one we want to talk about is being one of the root causes is gross domestic product. So between our constitution giving rights to corporation and no rights to nature, and then the way the accounting systems are set up, you can't have a static balance sheet. And now this growth model, gross domestic product. Right. Well, the fact is, you know, every government on earth today has enshrined 
GDP or gross domestic product as essentially its number one political goal. And that's because growth does tend to uh, improve employment, create all sorts of um, better situations for people in the short run. It does reduce reduce pressures for any uh, redistribution because if the pie is getting bigger, you don't have to share as much of the pie. Um, and But the fact is that GDP is a very crude measure of economic activity that has been criticized by many mainstream well-known economists. And um, the problem with it essentially is that GDP measures all economic activity and counts all of it as essentially as quote unquote good, even when that activity is very bad for the earth. For example, an oil spill devastates a remote coast of Alaska, so the oil company has to go pay somebody to clean it up. Well, that counts toward GDP. You know, GDP on paper goes up because someone got paid to clean it up, even though that's terrible for the earth. That's a system that we have. And so there's got to be a better way of doing things. And we need to bring this into our everyday understanding. And actually to bring this back to the 60s, what we talked about with earlier generations, this is an idea that was well understood by many back then. And I could read you a quote from Bobby Kennedy about GDP um, that is really illuminating and sort of inspiring. He, He... um, just a note about this, he calls it gross national product, GNP, that's very similar. But anyway, here's the quote. He says, too much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values and the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year, but that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the loss of our natural wonder. It counts napalm and counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts rifles and knives and the television programs which glorify violence for our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children the quality of their education or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It it measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, Bobby Kennedy, 1968. So when's the last time you heard a politician speak that way? It's been a long time. Well, this is what we have. This is how we have to be thinking if, if we want to truly make a difference and follow through with all of our slogans about saving the planet and whatnot. We have to think in these terms. So it's what I call shifting um, and redefining our benchmarks of health and wealth. Right now, we consider health to be our gross national domestic product and wealth to be the fatness of our bank accounts. And what we've seen over the past 50 years is this 1% of truly wealthy and, you know, another 2% of mostly wealthy and then the rest of the majority that is just trying to get by. So if we switch this around that health is means our personal health and everything that Bobby... Uh, 
Kennedy said, and we stop thinking about the health of the corporation and this terrible direction that we're going in and what it's led to. Multiple cultures of violence around the world as other countries pick up our model of growth, and we're seeing it everywhere, and reimagine this benchmark to be wealth is our earth and our health is a result of that. So can can you give us a couple of positive examples that you're seeing in your lifetime of how this is shifting and perhaps how we can help our listeners nudge in this direction? Right. Well, If we want to talk positive examples, I think that there is, you know, a groundswell of, um, you know, a groundswell out there. There is a shift in consciousness taking place. People are looking for answers. People are casting about looking for, you know, ways of changing the system because it's getting pretty darn obvious that things are not on the right track. And we all realize that. But we have to coalesce around you know a new vision and reconceptualize some of these basic things see i think one of the reasons it's so hard to reconceptualize that is that we take them for granted and there's they're so embedded and there's so much misinformation out there um and we've been doing it this way for so long right and there's a reason you know we've it's got these things have gotten us where we are for good and bad there's a reason you know we all there's a reason that the growth system was put in place in the first place we can you know, we can go into the history of that, but at this point in time, we have to reconceptualize and rethink and look at these things in a new way. And you know, I can give you some specific examples of um, ecological problems around the world that can that need to be addressed by looking at root causes. For example, our problem with plastic, we've already touched on it, but you know, studies show there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish by mid-century. So this is where folks can choose their consumer dollar when you go to the grocery store and pick up your weekly or daily batch and your packaging. This is where it comes down to the individual. Right, and people can do that and should do that And I also want people to think that's not necessarily going to be enough because if you don't buy the bottle, somebody else will. The corporation will make sure that somebody else does because it's built to do that. And, you know, you've got individual companies producing 100 100 billion plastic bottles per year. You've got, in the last five years, major corporations have invested hundreds of billions of dollars in new plastic manufacturing facilities which are capable of increasing our total capacity to produce plastic by 40%, okay? So we're already drowning in plastic and now we're gonna produce, increase our production by 40%. So we do have alternatives. And, you know, we kind of glossed over this um, in, in our conversation so far, is why aren't people picking this up? Why isn't it getting the corporate headlines and the corporate investments as opposed to, let's call them very simplistically, the good versus the bad? So we have so many um, technological innovations of bio bags, earth friendly, you know, recycled from recycled from recycled that really Mm. goes away. So why are we not hearing the uptick and upswing in these voices? How is it 
that we get the large, you know, the 12th monkey, the six degrees of separation, mm-hmm. you know, to get this to be, you know, unlike any trap, neuter, return program of feral cats, you have to reach 75% of the population to make the tipping point happen. So what are some ways we can push that tipping point? Right. Well, the the reason you're not seeing the those uh, more friend, eco-friendly technologies, I think, on a wider scale is because everything comes down to profits and dollars and cents. If it's profitable, it gets pushed. If it promotes growth, it gets implemented. If not, it doesn't. But they and, are profitable. We just haven't invested in them. Well, you know, perhaps so. But as we've talked about, you know, we have this massive system in place with all these entrenched interests and they they are making money doing what they're doing. And they also produce quite a bit of information out there. And it's hard for people to get a straight story and cut through all the BS because there's so much misinformation. I mean, as you know, you go on to social media or today or, or wherever. Watch, you- or watch any television show, a nature program and every 10 minutes you've got a commercial for selling cars or selling more consumptive items so while we're sitting there looking at our beautiful planet uh, we're advertising how we can destroy it right exactly consumption and growth and all that is is the very air we breathe in in our societies and it's hard to question that it's almost uh, bewildering to to turn around and start trying to analyze and question these basic structures of our society and, and, tr- and learn to see what they're doing in the natural world. But it is, we do have to do that. Uh, you know, other examples include um, deforestation. You know, we all want to save the rainforests in Southeast Asia, for instance, but they're being cut down to plant palm oil plantations, which are an environment. cows. Or, right? These are environmental disasters. The reason that's happening is because global demand for palm oil is surging. Um, and palm oil is in so many products. And as long as demand keep going, keeps going up in our growth system, keep, demand keeps growing, uh, as long as that goes up, the rainforests come down. Well, the one and, thing we didn't really address is the PR machine, public relations. And, you know, it started with uh, Freud's brother, who right. was just as uh, an accomplished psychiatrist in human um, uh, understanding. And he went in, he was the father of public relations. So he mm. used all our trigger points, of uh, psychological trigger points that Freud used to help figure out our issues to help create and get people to buy these things. He was the originator of PR. So the one thing we didn't really touch on is, you know, how we fall for this stuff. You know, whether it be a feminine spray that's going to make you smell better like a spring lane, just go Mm. take a shower and walk on a spring lane. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, shoes, Crocs, all this stuff. You don't need it, folks. You know, we have to start de-acquisitioning and get down to what we need. Once again, it doesn't mean go to living in a cave. We have to use what we've got and use it better in a more intellectual and um, deeper understanding of how systemic and how entrenched we are. That it goes to like to the movie I, Robot. You know, we're, we're, we're killing ourselves. And in the end, we can focus on all the species survival plans we want. 
But as we've been talking about today, if we don't change who we are, then the rest of it is just going to keep on turning this out. That's right, Ellie. I mean, we are exposed to hundreds of billions of dollars of advertising every year. And we have to learn to, you know, sort of immunize ourselves against that and block it out psychologically or, or actually just stop watching it and, um, and learn to look to the fundamentals, look past all of that sensationalism and the distractions and get to the fundamentals. Um, as we've talked about today, there are root causes. It, it's, you know, the, it, if you care about, you know, saving lions or cheetahs, rhinos, elephants, or you, your local forest, whatever it is, we have to tie that, connect the dots of that to the broad systemic forces that are threatening these things that we care about. And um, it really does come down to each of us. This is the, this is the paradigm shift of the uncomfortable edge we're sitting on. We have to change who we are and how we act and what we do. And, and that will do it. It will be a bottom-up trans, transition and transformation. And this is where the individual counts. And this is what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. Um, and I don't know, uh, Aaron, if you're, if you're aware, and speaking of Coca-Cola, mm. that um, in South Africa, Coca-Cola is taking over water production. This is scary, people. Right. When we have this kind of um, Pepsi Center and all this stuff running our lives, we have to make a change. So, um, unfortunately, we're out of time today. Aaron, this has been fabulous. We need to continue this discussion. And so join us, folks, next week with Ashwell again as we talk about these wicked problems that are deep, embedded, and systemic in our systems. And Aaron has given us a good idea today of what that is. So hopefully... Um, we go out there and we think about this a little bit more. So, Aaron, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ellie. It's been great being with you. It's It's been great. And um, I know we're going to continue this conversation here in the office and probably more on Our Wild World. So see you next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. <laughs>